0: Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Our guest with us in the studio today is Tom Voynier, a Paris-based architect and the founding president of the AIA Continental Europe. He is the recent past president of the Union of International Architects and also a past president of the American Institute of Architects. Tom is an extraordinary thinker, diplomat, and influencer in the world of architecture.
1: Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Well, thanks for
0: taking this time with me today. I look over your career. It's it's a storied career. You've had a fantastic run as an architect, as an executive leader across the design industry. It's been extraordinary. But as you look back over the last three or four decades of your profession, and in the unique role that you've sat in at the AIA and and, uh, the UIA, looking at all of these fantastic architects, and of course, their interfaces with thousands of consultants in the engineering space. What's really changed? What's truly changed over these decades? And what has remained the same from your perspective?
1: Yeah, interesting. Well, don't you think that the the technology have practice has, has transformed. I think if I look back at when I got out of school and the instruments and technology we were using to produce design documents, none of, it's all gone, uh, completely gone. And uh, not necessarily for the better, uh, but certainly not for the worse either. Uh, But I think the technology of how we produce design documents, how we think about buildings, how we sketch and conceptualize, that really has transformed. And that has brought with it, I think, an increase in the requirements for capital to become a professional. You know, now, if you look at the subscription fees for some of the software you've got to have, and if you look at the machines you need to have for a functioning office office, it's no longer the case that you could start on the kitchen table, which I think was literally true, maybe uh, as recently as as 25 years ago. So I, I think the technology has transformed. That's that's certainly a big part of it, and um, I, I don't think that's much of an insight. But I think it has led to an increased requirement for capital to get started. If if you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I would say also, and, and and I think in some respects, um, hand in hand with that, uh, the cost of design and, and what it takes to design something and the cost of building have, have changed. Um, they've become more substantial and uh, it's much, much more difficult for small entrepreneurs to enter the field, I think, today. Uh, and, and that is... Uh, a function of, of many factors, but partly just uh, the technology of how things get done.
0: So it's interesting you bring up a technology. Certainly, it has been amazing to watch the technological advances of the tools that have been made available to us, whether it's uh, the way that we deal with documentation in the cloud, the way we message to one another. We can do live collaboration around our our drawings. Certainly, our three-dimensional opportunities have yielded an amazing new perspective to the world of design. But I find it, as I visit so many practices, is the continued disconnect between the three-dimensional design and the two-dimensional trades. And how often we do all this work in a three-dimensional construct only to have to then translate it into a two-dimensional set of drawings for the trades to be able to action it out on the job sites. Uh, yeah,
1: I think there are some exceptions to that. I think some of the, some of the prefabrication companies, uh, I think of uh, Blue Steel and, and others who are sort of in the pre-engineered building business, they've really found ways to communicate very directly in, in three-dimensional uh, ways to, to people who actually put stuff together in the field. And I think that's more and more possible given the technology. So I, I think there's a good a good uh, direction there.
0: You have been living in Paris for many years. You've yes. operated on both sides of the Atlantic. And when you go back and forth, there are so many things that the American architectural profession could learn from our friends in Europe that we still seem—I don't know—either obtuse or resistant to learn those things. There's a—it seems to me there's a much higher degree of environmental and social, how shall I say, responsiveness within design within the European context. Often we are primarily financially driven on this side of the pond, and there seems to be a, a broader context of understanding. Am I misreading that? Any thoughts on? On that
1: well, i I think what what you're right about is that uh, one thing that has changed I think is a as a much broader sense of ethical responsibility for the profession i you know I can't imagine that uh, people who uh, practiced a generation ago or two thought about the environment, thought about extreme weather, thought about Uh, the nature of building materials. And, you know, I think that really began to come into consciousness, perhaps in the era of the whole earth catalog, Stuart Brand, um, the first oil embargo in the early 70s. And I think now on both sides of the pond and and beyond, for that matter, uh, on the African continent and elsewhere, Uh, There is a sense that the built environment matters, that uh, there's a sense of responsibility uh, in terms of climate, in terms of resources, in terms of justice and equity uh, among the design professions for what gets produced. And so I I think this sense of ethical responsibility is is present uh, almost everywhere in the profession. I suppose it's true that uh, Europeans have had to deal with scarcity and uh, the cost of resources, perhaps at a higher level than we've had to in North America, at least until now. And uh, maybe that explains some of what you describe. I think also uh, the value of sunlight and air in urban centers in Europe has been Uh, embraced much more widely and embodied in codes and standards to a greater degree than I think you find in the United States, partly because of density and and partly just because of traditions. So I I do think, though, Dave, that architects in the United States and, and certainly through their professional organizations have committed to certain objectives in terms of uh, resource conservation and trying to be responsible, um, and, and that's uh, laudable, and that is something that has changed.
0: You know, your work at the Union of International Architects has taken you to every every place on the earth. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, <laughs> it's a, a team, lot of them. Huge yeah. organization that spans truly the globe. I'd love to hear some of your perspectives. Of traveling the globe, certainly we just spoke about this extended umbrella of the ethical responsibility of the profession that you just brought up. There are significant differences in cultures, in uh, priorities, in, in practices. Uh, whether I'm in in Chile or whether I'm in China, uh, Australia versus even in Canada, both Commonwealth. But there, mm-hmm. I, I'm interested to hear some of your observations from around the world. Being truly cosmopolitan architect, an architect of the world.
1: Well, that's generous. You know, I, I think what I remark upon always is what unifies us and not what divides us or makes us different. And I think. There's an almost universal belief in the power of design to, to transform lives, to make lives better, in the power of architecture and good urban planning and good urban design to improve the the quality of life for people at all stations. And I think you do see a certain um, latitude or, or flexibility in uh, ethical norms as you go across the globe, and and by that I mean that architects are not always found to be operating in the best interests of their clients. Um, and we all know that uh, certain business climates around the world involve exchanges of funds that uh, we would not consider to be appropriate, and some of them are are even banned by uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So there's all of that, but I think. By and large, our profession is is notable for what keeps us kind of together, uh, more so than it is for what makes us different. I I do think that the difference in professional bodies is is profound. You know, many many countries uh, have professional bodies that are really creatures of the government they they combine a professional kind of guild with a regulatory body the, the same people who give licenses are are the same people who run the professional organization that's not true in the united states it's not true in in canada it's not true in a number of uh, especially commonwealth countries but in in many many countries uh, the professional organization is a Part of the government. France is a case in point. Uh, they collect pension funds. They administer pension funds. They they uh, obtain funds from the government. That is not true in the U.S. And so that gives uh, our professional organization a good deal more latitude in a way to. Uh, say what it thinks, to take positions that it believes in, and to uh, undertake efforts that aren't always compatible with what the government wants to do, and sometimes are even at odds with what the government wants to do. So I think there is a difference there.
0: Yeah, I think so. I had years ago the opportunity to sit down. It was so unusual. I was invited to the home of Joel Kurtzman. Joel was an interesting fellow he was the the un economist uh, representing the united states for a period of time he was the editor in chief of the harvard business review and uh, several other things in his storied career one of the the most important outputs that he produced was a thing called the opacity index which was the ability to look country by country around the world to see what its level of transparency was so it was called you know things were opaque or they were crystal clear right It was extraordinary and as you applied this to the countries i think it at the time it applied to about 150 countries when he first generated this and then later i think this piece of intellectual property was sold to price waterhouse coopers uh, which they took and did a bunch of other stuff with and i think that you've you know you've you've tripped on that when you start talking about you start looking at different countries we have different levels of opacity the western ethic is different than an eastern ethic it just is it doesn't mean we're not going to say right or wrong we're just going to say different every culture has its own dynamic that is accepted. It's when we begin to mix those where we find those conflicts, you know, happening. Our Western mind will not allow there to be an Eastern construct and sometimes vice versa in that. And certainly, I'm sure you've encountered that in your career, traveling from place to place, North and South and East and West.
1: I I say that's true. I I think one of the one of the factors that also I, I observe is that many, many clients, especially in the hospitality industry, but also in in various transportation and industrial sectors, are are drawn to U.S. practitioners and to the large firms from the United States because they've been so successful because they produce such good work. We're not the only ones. I mean, we have competitors across the globe, but we do stand out. I think for the quality of of what. We produce, and uh, I think for the ethical constructs within which we operate. And and I think people uh, who retain architects from the United States have have a degree of confidence in what comes out at the other end and what it will take to get there. And and, um, that's a very strong card in the international environment. And I think we're admired for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you uh you asked about what has changed and i would add one more thing i think um there's a much clearer understanding of the link between health public health human health and the design of the physical environment there are a number of people and uh, responsible for that but i think we now understand that Uh, Problems of obesity, of diabetes, of uh, lung disease, of allergies, of a whole host of human ailments are very closely tied to what the physical environment either demands of us or imposes upon us. And we know that cultures that spend a lot of time walking uh, tend to be much healthier than cultures that spend a lot of time driving automobiles. And that's directly linked to the design of the environment and and how uh, people live. And I think there's a much better understanding of that uh, generally, not only within the design professions, but I think now increasingly in the general public and uh, certainly in the minds of of political leaders, especially at the local level. We live in the world that now has something on the order of seven and a half billion people uh it was a third of that when i was born perhaps a little less uh and that is imposing a tremendous set of pressures on uh societies all across the globe including our own in the united states and I, and i think we're going to have to come to terms with these understandings and these pressures and uh, i think we're starting to see evidence of that every day on the what's going on in the Western states right now in terms of extreme weather, but not only. Um, I think we see uh, the cost of living and the cost of transport as factors that affect people's lives in a a very uh, direct way. So I think that's a change. Uh, What hasn't changed in my mind is um, the fact that access to our profession, becoming an architect, remains a challenge for many people. Uh, And I would say that uh, the cost of education, uh, the barriers to entry, despite very strong efforts, um, have not really produced um, results that we can be proud of or consider uh, satisfactory. There are are many, many uh, examples, but I think the most uh, direct example is that uh, people of color have not gravitated to architecture and, and numbers that parallel what we see in the general population. It's improving, but there's a long, long way to go. And uh, I think that hasn't changed. Uh, I think, you know, despite the growth in regulations in safeguards in environmental controls, there are still, uh, I would call, very light consequences for failure, for underperformance for, um, let's say, uh, buildings that don't uh, really do much to relieve environmental burdens. And um, that hasn't changed. I I, I think um, shoddy work and and bad buildings continue uh, uh, to be built at at a large scale. And uh, the consequences for that are relatively uh, minor, uh, it seems to me. What hasn't changed and what has stayed the same, finally, is I think uh, what I mentioned earlier, this idea that design has the power to improve people's lives. And that's why many of us were drawn to architecture in the first place. We really believed we could make a difference. And uh, I think that brings many people our way still today. You know, just six months
0: ago, you were in Glasgow as the COP26 uh, convened. And we were so thankful that live from that event over that period of time, you were sending dispatches to us at Design Intelligence, which we republished and put out across our vast network. It was just fantastic. And, and you know, as we look at at the press that came out of that event, it was, I would say, uh, if I was to describe it physically, I would say it was a yawn. Mm-hmm. People, people were not... Um, Satisfied? Uh, certainly, those of younger generations were actually kind of pissed off that there wasn't more a radical change and hard decisions made and consensus around uh, immediate actions. And I think that the 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 design profession kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, "Okay." And in general, Tom, what do we do about this? I mean, it's great to come together to share our common stories to hopefully debate what the issues are, but I don't know that we can really legitimately or intelligently debate that we are in a climate debilitation period in our world. And it really comes to so many more than the design profession. Every human on earth has to make choices around this. But what say you for us? How how do we as a as representatives of the built environment industry move beyond the talk to immediate? Action that results in measurable outcomes. I, I'm frustrated by this. I want to hear what What do you think, Tom?
1: You know, in general, as a profession, we're we're doing quite well, and part of that is simply driven by the cost of of energy resources and the demand among clients to try and do everything possible to reduce the costs of operation, which makes sense, and uh, that's what you'd expect. It's not enough. And to me, the development industry, the uh, people who develop real estate and uh, produce vast expenses of sprawl and expansion of the built environment into natural settings, into agricultural land on the periphery of cities, must be held to account and must bear the costs, the genuine costs of that kind of expansion. Uh, it's a global phenomenon. It's by no means uh, limited to the United States or, or um, North America. Anywhere you go in the world, you see exactly the same patterns of single-family housings uh, expanding out into the the exurban environment, taking over valuable uh, natural and agricultural land. But the infrastructure to support that, if it's ever put in place at all, the cost for that is imposed upon um, the smallest people, the taxpayers and uh, those who who are least in a way uh, profiting from that kind of expansion. So if if your question is what about the built environment can be done to try and curb this sort of uh, unlimited uh, expansion into uh the periphery of urban environments i'd say we have to make the costs of doing that have to make those costs borne by the people who are profiting from and promoting that kind of development yes um mm-hmm. I, yep. I we I, I have been to so many cities over the last two decades where the inner cities are decaying falling apart have have been abandoned and neglected for long periods of time and yet. Those are the places where the basic infrastructure is in place. Uh, The sewers, the pipes, the roads, the the networks that make cities possible are all in place. And yet uh, these are also cities where expansion out into the hinterlands is going at a a crazy pace. So I think we have to redevelop and reuse what we have. Um, That's where we've got to start. We've got canals, roads, bridges, rail lines parks, uh, sidewalks, uh, bike lanes, all, all those things that uh, we know are good for the environment that we have to focus upon. And I call that infrastructure for human beings. And, and uh, you know, the, the great masters, uh, Haussmann in Paris and Alphonse, his architect, uh, we've talked about this before, that these are people who a 100 and some years ago, 150 years ago, uh, talked about, well, what is the ideal way to live? What what should, we, what should we aspire toward in the design of our living environments? And they really talked about very basic human needs and, and requirements. And the, the cities that people most admire and, and come away from saying, wow, what a great place, are actually cities that encourage walking, that have lots of greenery, that have excellent public transport, that have small commerce, uh, that are clean, uh, that have, uh, you know, healthy air and, and clean water. They're very basic, uh, simple truths about urban living that I think, you know, we we should espouse, embrace, and aspire toward. I'm
0: going to ask you, as we start to, to wrap up, we're in the middle of a war in the Ukraine right now. There is there are i think upwards of five million people that are displaced as refugees at this point and uh, we're still in a very ambiguous state as to how intense this war is and what's really happening and how long will it last and there are more questions than answers at this point, but we're watching the result of this awful destruction and amazing displacement of people. And I know you had told me earlier before we got on that that you and many of your colleagues, um, professionals and past presidents and active participants in the UIA are gathering soon in Madrid to talk about what do we do about housing. And I think your some of your focus is moving away from the general topic to the more specific topic of addressing such insecurities as the place where we are right now with, with, with Ukraine and the neighboring countries. Speaking to our audience, how can we best participate through our compassion to bring and add value to the work that the European architectural and engineering communities are leveraging into this? If if we here in the United States and in Canada are listening to this, how can we participate in a way that would be meaningful to assist, support, back up, provide, find a word uh, to participate
1: in this? I think the United States government is going to liberalize the requirements for sponsoring refugees in the united states from ukraine uh upwards of a hundred thousand might be anticipated that's a start um that's a humane gesture it's not uh permanent necessarily although these things tend to become permanent and and i think we should support policies that provide relief to to people and uh, that's a tough swallow for people in the united states there are many Mm -hmm. people uh who say hey, that's you know that's Europe's problem that's far away from us and there's some truth to that. Uh, on the other hand, we live in a small planet uh, by some standards, and so I think every every measure of uh, compassion and and every gesture helps and is important. Um, I think it's a hopeful uh, sign that people architects are starting to think about well what can we do to reconstruct. Kharkiv in particular, a city, and I've been there, um, wonderful city in the eastern part of Ukraine, very near the Russian border that now is, by all accounts, um, nearly flattened in the way that many cities were at the end of, of the Second World War in Europe. Um, and so it's hopeful that people are looking toward a future in which you could start to consider how can we rebuild and what should we rebuild. So I hope that, that architects everywhere will, will uh, be able to sort of think in those terms and participate in that. Uh, in a much broader way, I, I've been thinking, Dave, about, um, you know, institutions like the UIA, uh, the International Union of Architects was created in the aftermath of World War II. And uh, the, as I said, cities were in, in ruin across Europe and the architects who, who created the UIA in 1948, were people who were eager to to rebuild and thought they could do uh, something positive and constructive. But I wonder if the institutions we've got um, aren't part of the problem. You know, we have a new generation of leaders in organizations like UNESCO, uh, UN Habitat. Uh, but maybe uh, the framework itself is what's ossified and kind of um not working right and maybe in addition to just sort of new people we need new institutions and uh, not just new people in the old ones so i'm not sure what the shape needs to be of those institutions but i think they have to be um, somehow lighter weight more flexible uh, somehow unburdened by the apparatus that surrounds so many of the organizations we know I'm not sure regulations is the right word. It seems to me we need innovative, daring, determined people who are oriented to action, not just policy. I I remember being uh, in um, the World Urban Forum in uh, Kuala Lumpur, probably three years ago now. And there was a mayor from a U.S. city who was in one of the workshops and somebody was going on and on about uh, the climate problem. And he stood up and said, don't tell me we have a problem. I know we have a problem. I know all about that. Tell me what we can do about it. Show me solutions that work. Show me things that I can implement. And I I think that's where we need to be is in sort of um, promoting uh, things that we know will work and that make a difference in people's lives. That's not going to bring an end to war, but I think that's in a way not our business. Uh, It's the business of diplomats and and, uh, elected leadership and governments to do that, and perhaps the military. Our role is to try and point to a world that can be better for everyone uh, through design and through uh, sort of compassionate use of our skills and our resources. So I I hope that's where architects will be.
0: What a fabulous time together. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on This Is Design Intelligence. Thanks for taking the
1: time today to talk with us. Thank you, Dave. It's a privilege to be with you. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This Is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.